0: A better way to do this Let me show you a better way hi folks. This is Jack Speerko with another edition of the survival podcast It's always one man 's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don 't Today is episode twelve hundred and fifty of the survival podcast it 's a Monday. So we have listener feedback for November 18th, 2013. Today, to be on a show like this, what you do is you send me an email. That email should go to jack at com. Some people say it's hard to understand my website sometimes, so let me say it a way that other people say it in different parts of the country. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, T-H-E, survivalpodcast.com. T-H-E survival Put uh, article for Jack, subject for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, article for Jack, something like that in the subject line. Three words, and two of them should be for Jack, and the first word should precede the for Jack If you do that, it will go into a special folder for my screening. I cannot answer all of them. I cannot answer all of them. Uh, We're talking hundreds a day. uh, And I can put maybe 10, 12, the most ever, probably 15 on a show like this. So that means if you email me and you don't get an answer, it doesn't mean I didn't read it. It just means that I couldn't handle the volume uh, of emails. And also, sometimes you'll get a really quick uh, answer from me by email back. Sometimes I don't... Answer on the show, sometimes those quick emails, people are like, oh, I wanted more than that. I give you what I can, man. Um, And usually I give you the part that's really important, and then you can take it from there. Uh, I do try to help as many of you as I can, but as I've stated before, if I were to spend two minutes on every legitimate email that I get, two minutes on every legitimate, not spam, but legitimate email that I get, I would have to spend about 36 hours a day doing emails. And since there's 24 hours in a day, I can't do it. So, I'm not going to (laughs) try. Anyway, before we get into your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today is Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Berkey water filtration systems. But why go to the Berkey guy to get your Berkey? Why not go to the non Berkey guy at the gun show or or the guy down the street that just got into, you know, uh, some kind of uh, prepper business or something like that? Because he's the Berkey guy. Why would you get your Berkey from the non Berkey guy when you could get it from the Berkey guy himself? Seriously, though, Jeff is the Berkey guy because he's one of the leading dealers for Berkey in the world. Not just the country, but in the world. He is an absolutely outstanding guy. He is a fanatic about customer service. And the reason you should order from the Berkey guy, he supports the Survival Podcast, one of our longest-term sponsors ever. He's a wonderful person. He'll take good care of you. And if anything goes wrong, you know he's going to fix it. He's so psychotic with customer service. I had him on a discussion panel one time. He was doing customer service on his iPad while he was on the discussion panel. Um, that's dedicated beyond belief, guys. Check it out, the Berkey guy. You can find him at Directive21.com. Next up today, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Hey, if you want to learn how to cook seasonally and locally, if you want to learn how to use all of the crazy stuff I talk about on this show that you can grow that nobody talks about and turn that into awesome food, if you want to make cooking a life skill, if you want to improve your health and your wealth when you look at personal skill sets, Check out Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. And if you want some of the best seasonings you'll find anywhere on the planet, check out Chef Keith's seasoning mixes. My favorites, of course, are low and slow uh, barbecue, the steak seasoning, and the uh, grilled chicken. I actually like them all, but those are the three that I use. Every week I use each one of those at least once, if not more more often. Check him out at harvesteating.com, and check out his awesome podcast as well. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. It is how we... Uh, it's how we pay the bills around here is uh with the member support brigade it's far more of what we need than uh, than, than the, the let me put it a different way it's far more how we pay the bills than we do from sponsorship. I keep my advertising rates extremely low um, for the size of the audience we reach now. The sponsors I have most of them have been with me more than four years uh, I don't want bigger sponsors, and the way I run a show where I can do that is by using listener support with the Member Support Brigade. That's how I'm able to tell very large sponsors who want to throw very large checks at you uh, to go go pound sand because I don't like what they're doing. Um, so, you know, that's one reason to become a member. The other reason to become a member is that it really does pay for itself, especially for those of you here in the United States. I know those of you that listen abroad, some of the discounts don't really help you out very much. Uh, but the discounts for someone here living in, in the United States, uh, where I have most of my sponsors and connections, More than pay for the uh, membership many times over. Just two of the discount uh, memberships you get for free, $50 membership for free to Western Botanicals and a $49 membership for free to Save Castle. It's $99 worth of free discount memberships in my discount membership. Then i got about 38 other vendors for you, and I am working to bring some more on. I'm always looking for people to bring on to the Member Support Brigade uh, to increase the value to you. And it gets better. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, your prior service, or a first responder—again, active duty or prior service—like a EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, all of you guys get what's called a service discount to thank you for your service to our nation, either at home and/or abroad. Just email me before you join. Put "subject discount" in the subject line, and in one or two sentences—that is all I need. Tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if what your prior service, what you did in the past, so I know that I'm giving you a service discount for service rendered. Um, the way, the place to send that, same place you send your emails for a show like this, jack at com, or depending on what part of the country you're from, like me, you would say jack at com. Let's get into, uh, uh, the, uh, the year. The year today, 1250. A lot of times I've been skipping the, the history segment lately because there's not been a lot to talk about. There's a ton in 1250. I'm only going to cover a few things. And, um, I, I just, want to actually encourage you maybe today, if you've never done so, come to the show notes and click on the year 1250 in the show notes and look at some of the other things that went on in this year. So let's start out with this. The world population in 1250 is estimated between 400 and 416 million individuals. There's about 320-ish million people in the United States today the world population in 1250 was estimated to be just about 100 million more than what we have in the our country in the entire world at the time. This was also the approximate transition from what was called the medieval warm period into the little ice age. That's a very big thing in history. A lot of things changed in the world because of the Little Ice Age, including that world population number of 400 to 416 million. You're going to see a big bottleneck in the population before it swells back up as we move forward in time. So those are two really big deal things when we look at 1250. Um, Looking at a different part of the world, Samoa. Uh, Samoa in Oceania, right? Samoa frees itself from Tongan rule, beginning the Matalitoa dynasty in Samoa around this approximate date. So we don't really think of, like, Samoa and Tonga as, you know, any kind of conquesting part of the world, just, you know, people that kick back and enjoy coconuts or what have you. But, you know, there's a lot of things going on in other parts of the world. More on that in a second. I want to add one more thing, though. I want you to listen to this. The Flemish town of Durai emits the first recorded redeemable annuities in medieval Europe, confirming the trend of consolidation of local public debt started in 1218 in Reims. Now, we talked about that in episode 1218. But this is basically where a town or a state says, if you come forward and put money into the, the local treasury, we'll pay you an annuity on it. Basically, this is a bond. Right, This is a government bond. So this is this move toward a public debt-based economy where governments finance what they do through debt and primarily began that debt scheme in retaining obtaining debt from their own people. Hmm, what does that sound like? This is the year 1250. So, again, we see the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, There is a bunch at 1250. I could probably do a show on 1250. There's so much here. Um, So, again, check it out. I do want to um, point this out for you. I got an email today from somebody that said, here's this site about Africa. And it talks about all these things that happened in Africa. But it's not like by year, right? Um, And I've gotten emails like that, like, there was stuff going on in South America. Why don't you talk about the stuff over here? And occasionally stuff comes up. I use Wikipedia for this segment because, okay, listen, for those of you that think I'm, like, shelling out, you know, just, like, only focusing on Europe and Asia or whatever, because it's easy, because it only adds about five minutes to my production time, if any of you would like to get out ahead of the, the history segment and be able to send me concise summarized things that happened in parts of the world that would be interesting for future episodes, and check Wikipedia first. If they're in there, I'll see them and decide if I want to put them on. But if you want to do that, I would be happy to. But I can't spend you know another two hours a day doing research on a site to figure out what happened in Africa or what happened in Australia in the year 1250. If it doesn't make it onto Wikipedia, it probably won't make it on the show unless you guys that think that's important send me some tidbits. And Some of you just know some things that happened. And as long as they're after 1250, you can send it to me. Put history for Jack in the subject line when you send me that email. And and try to get me some concise. I'm talking, you know, as concise as Wikipedia is, like one sentence and then a link for more information about that thing. If you can do that, I'll try to get some stuff that's, you know, extracurricular into there. I'd love to. I just don't have the time to add to what we're already doing. So, with that, let's get into uh, your emails today. And, uh, the things that, uh, that we're finding out, or I'm well, finding, I'm sorry, I'm a little off today. It's a Monday and worried about my dog, Max. He, uh, really hurt his, uh, his back leg. We got to take him to the vet at about two o'clock. So, uh, maybe that's why I'm a little bit off. I'm sure I'll be fine though. Uh, first one comes in from, uh, Robert. And, uh, Robert says, nice article, Bitcoin going mainstream question mark. And this is an article on CNN money. And, uh, I've been very pragmatic about Bitcoin. Like, it's a great idea. I hope it works. I don't know if it will. You know, can the government shut it down? And my opinion is the government can shut it down for Americans, okay, if they want to, if they choose to, and if they're willing to to take on that battle, they can. And here's how they would do it they would simply say it is illegal for Americans to use Bitcoins, pass a law that says that, and it doesn't matter whether they can track the transactions accurately, whatever. All they would have to then prove to create criminal activity is that you've transferred or taken Bitcoins as money. Now, will they do that? I don't know. I'll tell you this, they don't like it. They don't like Bitcoin at all. Um, and it's part of why I've been concerned about it. But there's something happening right now that could really change the game um, and make Bitcoin just basically another currency in the world. And at that point, it would be very difficult so i 'm not saying impossible but very difficult for the u s to not look completely draconian. I mean it would be like coming out and saying you know you can 't hold gold and silver again. It would be to that level if, if this goes forward where it looks like it might be going there 's good news for the good news for the bitcoin people here 's the article uh, China is quietly positioning itself to dominate the brave new world of Bitcoin until recently. the digital cryptocurrency was considered a joke by financial mainstream. I'm going to stop there and say the financial mainstream should be considered a joke by all of us. Just honestly. Back to the article. But this view is starting to shift now that prices have surged above their April peak and are now hovering around $600 of Bitcoin. Bitcoins are still being viewed cautiously by lawmakers and regulators in the United States. Gee, we can't control it, so we don't like it. What a surprise that our ass clowns feel that way. In fact, there are two Senate hearings this week about the risks a Bitcoin poses. But that is decidedly not the case in China. There has been a steady drumbeat of positive news in Chinese press this year, including a landmark report on CCTV, China's national television network. China's fascination with the currency upstart resulted in an estimated 40,000 client downloads a day and a a burgeoning acceptance rate from online retailers down to physical traders uh, standing in Tiananmen Square. The largest Bitcoin exchange in the world is located securely inside China, and one of the world's largest internet companies, Bado, is integrating in using Bitcoin. It seems highly unlikely that Bado would be, uh, or Bado, or Bado, be- I'm not sure how you say that, but it's basically China's Google, uh, would be able to integrate Bitcoin payments across its vast network of users without some sort of complicit nod from higher authorities. In other words, if a business does something in China, especially a business the size that they are, then like the authorities have said it's okay or you don't do it. And I... I Completely agree with that. Chinese interest could play a huge role in turning Bitcoin into the first trillion-dollar non-fiat currency. <clears throat> non-fiat currency, yeah, maybe. Related, China fuels Bitcoins to record high. So why has China been so? That was a related article they stuck in there on me. Anyway, so why has China been so quick to embrace the virtual currency? It is has been down to this has been down this road before. In 2009, the government moved to a staunch. Uh, the rapidly rising phenomenon known as QQ, the virtual currency from social duggernaut Tencent. In just a couple of years, QQ had grown to such an extent that some estimates put it at 13% of the Chinese cash economy. It was threatening to supplant the yuan in uh, in a viral tsunami that showed no signs of abating. At its height, people similarly gathered in public places to take QQ, uh, and shopkeepers began accepting it for payment. Because Tencent controlled QQ through central online reserves, the Communist Party's response was swift, hobbling QQ at its knees and bringing it well back into line overnight. How did they do it? Since QQ was centrally managed, all the Chinese government had to do was tell Tencent to limit QQ's use or face a total shutdown of their business, so Tencent reeled it in. Such a move is not so easy with a decentralized cryptography of Bitcoin, and Chinese officials know that. Within months of the chomp on QQ, Bitcoin algorithm was released anonymously online. Bitcoin is difficult to cho- ch- trace, and as the open source aspects of Bitcoin grew and strong demand began to push prices up, China took notice, perhaps having been more aware than others of how quickly and completely these things can take off. In other words, since they got their butt kicked by it once, they understood what it could do again, and they understood this time they couldn't really stop it. I'm going to skip a little bit in uh, in, in the article um, as Bitcoin infrastructure matures, it is the potential to be used as currency in commodity markets and other areas of trade with lightning quickness from gold to wheat to cotton and yes, oil. In Africa, this could mean the destruction of weak country currencies, large-scale consumer ad- adoption via mobile payments, and a new era for Chinese financial supremacy in Africa at large. For America, oil contracts from non-OPEC dominated in uh, Bitcoin, denominated Bitcoin would pose a significant threat. Okay. Um that could be the real reason that China is doing this um They are very much the new colonialists China is the new colonialist, and they are they are colonizing Africa and to a lesser degree, Central and South America, and to a a very minor degree, the United States of America, specifically through uh, California, who is so desperate for money, they're helping Chinese people get fast tracks to U.S. citizenship in return for them buying property and paying property taxes in the state of California. Um, As it looks at Africa, though, it realizes that that's the future if you want growth. Because the way you get growth in the world today as a nation is through expansion, and you don't expand into stable markets, you expand into growth markets. So, in other words, if you were in a, a company that made widgets, and you were going to buy a, another company and spend it in your widget company... You would tend to try to buy a company that's got the next great widget, not the company that has just the widget that's a, like one, one generation back from you, but still has an installed base. You'd want to go into that developing market. Um, Asia is a developing market, but China is most of Asia right now. And the parts of China that, or parts of Asia that China doesn't have its teeth into are not hip on jumping on board with China, and they don't really need China. They either are willing to stay in the stone age or they're doing just fine without China, right? So, I mean, that's, that's a huge reality there for China. Like, if you want to do something, you can't do it here. So, where do you go? You can't go to Europe. I mean, you can go play in the European market, but you're not going to go do colonialism in Europe. Europe invented colonialism. So, okay, you're going to go to the United States and do it. We're pretty good colonialists ourselves, and I don't say that always is a bad term, just the truth, right? That's what we, that's how we acted, is, is, colonialists. Go into other nations and develop them to both the end of the nation you're developing and to yourself. That is, that is new colonialism. You know, that's, that's the truth, whether you like the word or not. Um, Canada, good luck, right? Mexico, maybe, except Mexico is so wrapped up with the United States, there's only so much you can do there. And and Mexico's got like the ability to develop if it wants to, but it's so mired in corruption it's not. So where does that leave you? It leaves you Central America, specifically around the canal zone and other opportunities to create canal zones for world trade. Some of South America, which is fairly well developed, and the real hotspot for development is Africa. Rich in natural resources and largely undeveloped. Um, been through its share of colonialism, kind of a, a hard fisted colonialism. So when China comes in with its new world velvet glove colonialism to these nations that are desperate, wow, they're like, you know, we can work with these guys. These guys aren't so bad, you know, and they're not like the last guys that came here, right? They don't look like them. Don't think that doesn't play a role in this. So. When China looks at something like Africa and sees the development of energy resources there and sees an opportunity to take a two-pronged attack at the petrodollar now, the Chinese currency, maybe a three-pronged attack. You've got the Chinese currency with direct competition. You've got a basket currency proposed of the BRIC alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, China, with South Africa being the beachhead for financial activities, turning it from BRIC to BRICs with South Africa maybe having a small s as a smaller role in, in the in the global scheme of things, and now you, you, you back something like an alternative currency like Bitcoin, and you bring that three-pronged pincher attack on the petrodollar. Now, it's not line for line the same, but do you know that no military force in history has ever survived a three-pronged attack? A, a, a successfully executed three-pronged attack has always resulted in victory in the military. Right? There's been a lot of two-pronged attacks repelled. But once you get that third flank and you push and pincher that, it's, you know, and that's what almost happened, for instance, at the Battle of the Bulge. When that bulge fell out, if they would have got that last piece of the flank successfully engaged, we would have lost that battle. Maybe not the war, but that battle. But they weren't able to do it so that the forces there were able to hold out long enough till reinforcements came and pushed the bulge back. But you get a three-pronged pincher attack, that's kind of what I see financially here. We'll bring our currency to bear. We'll bring this basket currency idea to bear. And we'll bring this Bitcoin currency idea to bear. And if we can figure out anything else that we can have a big hand in, and then while the Americans are fighting it, we'll embrace it. This, this, is, this could be a game-changer for Bitcoin. It also could be an opportunity for China to maybe take some control over something that's heretofore not been very controllable. If the rest of the world's governments start to go on a war against Bitcoin, China becomes its protector. Once somebody starts protecting you, guess what? You become somewhat, you know, know, kind of indebted to them. So who knows? Who knows how China will use this? But it does tell us that, especially if you get like one more big country, to take this attitude toward Bitcoin, it's almost game on at that point. You know, like, if you get somebody, let's say that China talks to Brazil or India or Russia and one of the other BRICs say, yeah, we're going to do this too. We like this. And if all of them did it, I'm telling you, man, there's a war on the dollar and there's a reason for it. Um, We've been very abusive with our status as a world reserve currency, and this is just one more salvo over the bridge, where most people will look at this and see this as something that's like just about Bitcoin. It's not about Bitcoin. It's about global economics and creating alternatives before the dollar has its day of reckoning. So this is something to keep an eye on, and just another indicator that you've got nations now that are willing to say, we have more confidence in something put together on an open-source hacker platform in some ways, than we do the United States dollar. Pay attention, guys. Let's go a totally different way with the next email. Larry, who sends me all kinds of emails, uh, says to me, you live in an area that loves prickly pear cactus. Will you cultivate them on your property? As far as I know, you can eat the petals if you skin them, and the red fruits on top taste to me like a cross-between watermelon and kiwi. Are there other cactus you might be interested in cultivating? Um... I probably won't do a lot of cactus cultivation. And part of that reason is if I want cactus for either petals or fruit, there's so much available on, you know, um, land that you can go out and wildcraft that it's not really necessary. It would be like, oh, I don't know, spending a lot of time cultivating wild cultivars of blueberries in Pennsylvania. Uh, or in some parts of the South, spend a lot of time and energy to cultivate wild cultivars of blackberry. Um, in, in, you know, in, when it's all over the place, it's in every roadside ditch. It just doesn't make a lot of logistical sense to use cultivated land for a lot of that. There's some places where they're just growing on their own, and I am not trying to eradicate them or anything. But I think as we success this thing forward, uh, a lot of the reason that there's cactus growing here natively right now is due to the edge effect on what you would call kind of a stage brush step ecosystem. And I'm going to success right out of that. Into more of a of a woodland uh ecosystem, and it probably will be the case that cactus will sort of somewhat kind of wane off on their own as we do that, so I'll look to other places where I can go get that now on the use of cactus as food, I've had cactus petals done quite a few ways, and I've never much cared for it. It's too slimy and muculus you know, like just yeah like. Like, think of, like, okra times four as far as that slimy, mucousy sensation. I've even had it, like, breaded and deep fried, and it's passable, but it's still too much of that. And if you can't make something good by deep frying it, uh, you're in a world of hurt by, to make it good at all. Now, it's a definitely a good food source and, and, uh, nutrient and moisture source, uh, in a survival situation. It's very hearty, so that's good. Now, the fruits, on the other hand, um, Watermelon and kiwi. I don't know about watermelon or kiwi, but I definitely taste the watermelon there. Almost like a watermelon something. Um, definitely did I taste. Maybe kiwi is the right term. Um, when it comes to those fruits, the longer they sit on there, the better. When they're almost dark, almost like they're going to almost turn black and all of the little thorns are gone. You don't have to shave them off. That's the best time to harvest them. Um, I like to eat them fresh. One, they're like that. If they're not quite that way, they have kind of a strong taste to them that are, isn't so good. Um, so you got to really wait till they're they're fully on ripe. What they're really awesome for is mead making. There is a prickly pear cactus fruit mead made famous by Charlie Papazian uh, that he suggests you make with mesquite honey, and I've made it in the past, and it, it's pretty phenomenal. It's pretty amazing, and I think it would be good in meads. I think a prickly pear cactus Fruit, wheat beer would be really interesting. And I think maybe that, that it lends itself more to things like that than direct food usage, in my opinion. If I was going to use that fruit at all in some kind of a meal, I would be more likely to get, you know, a good handful of those fruits, cut them up, de seed them, and mix them into a salad or something like that. I think they'd make an interesting salad. I've never cooked with them, but I imagine they could be cooked into a pretty interesting sauce. But as for the petals, I'm not a fan. Uh, I know somebody's going to tell me how wonderful they are, and I guess you like slimy food. Um, Not that I'm opposed to trying just about anything, but yeah, we'll just let that one lie. And I probably won't be growing it, but I do see it as a valid uh, wildcrafting food source. And I think in some areas of the country, it might be a good thing to put into a system. And who knows? I may, as I design this out, end up with some area that's kind of a harsh thing, and I want to preserve some of the native plantings and things like that in a more open setting than a, you know, a closed native planting setting. And uh, I might work that in. And and that would be actually a really valid thing to do. So I'll think about it, but it won't be a big-time thing. It'll be maybe this one little area uh, where people can kind of see what the, the life is like here, uh, in open areas when, you know, man is not doing anything good or bad, just letting things be. Uh, anyway, good question, Larry. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this comes to me from, uh, my intern, Josiah Wallingford, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty telling thing when you actually think about the, the meaning behind it. Um, the title of this blog post, and it's backed up with, uh, CDC uh, statistics with links to it. It's called "Fear of Terror Makes People Stupid." And this is actually from June twenty first, two thousand eleven. So one of the really striking statistics may be a lot higher in in, in, in comparison today than it was in two thousand eleven. Uh, but this is on the on Washington's blog. And, uh, let me read it to you. Scientists note that fear of terrorism makes people stupid. As I've recently reported, FBI agents and the central intelligence officials, constitutional law expert Professor Jonathan Turley, Time Magazine, and the Washington Post have all said U.S. government officials, quote, were trying to create an atmosphere of fear in which Amer- the American people would just give them more power. Indeed, the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, admits that he was pressured to raise terror alerts to help Bush win reelection. In the real world, statistics from a 2004 National Safety Council report, the National Center for Health Statistics, and the U.S. Census Bureau, and 2003 mortality data from the Center for Disease Control show the following. Now, the next time you hear about how we need to do things that are stupid and trample your liberties because of terrorists, I want you to think about these numbers. You are 17,600 times more likely to die from heart disease than a terrorist attack. You are 12,571 times more likely to die from cancer than a terrorist attack. You are 11,000 times more likely to to die in a plane accident than from a terrorist plot involving an airplane. This includes the numbers from 9-11 in it, by the way, which kind of skew it toward the terrorists. 11,000 times more likely to die in an airplane accident than from a terrorist plot involving an airplane. Just one more time, please take that in. 11,000 times more likely to die in an airplane accident than from a terrorist plot involving an airplane. You are 1,048 times more likely to die from a car accident than from a terrorist attack. You are 404 times more likely to die in a fall than from a terrorist attack. You are 87 times more likely to drown than die from a terrorist attack. You are 13 times more likely to die in a railway accident than from a terrorist attack. You're 13 times more likely to be killed by a train than a terrorist, okay? You are 12 times more likely to die from accidental suffocation in bed than from a terrorist attack. You're 12 times more likely to suffocate yourself while you sleep than be killed by Ahmed the dead terrorist, all right? Again, this is backed up with statistics from the government. If you care to look, right? How about this one? You are nine times more likely to choke to death on your own vomit than die in a terrorist attack. Here's the one that should make everybody stop and think for a minute about what we're doing in this country. You are eight times more likely to be killed by a police officer than by a terrorist. You are eight times more likely to be killed by a police officer than Ahmed, the dead terrorist. Um, you're also eight times more likely to die from an accidental electrocution than a terrorist attack, and you're six times more likely to die from hot weather than a terrorist attack. Um, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. That's as much as I'm going to cover on it. Joe actually sent me three different links. I'm going to put all three sets of links in the uh show notes for you today. And uh maybe, maybe the next time you talk to somebody who tells you how this is all necessary for our safety, maybe you should share these with them. Don't even tell them because they'll just say that's not true. That can't be true. Just say, can I get your email address? I'd like to share something with you about that. I you are eight times more likely to be shot to death by a police officer than killed by a terrorist. You are 12 times more likely to suffocate yourself in your own bed than get killed by a terrorist, and nine times more likely to choke to death on your old vomit. Eight times more likely to electrocute yourself, and six times more likely to pass out and die from the hot sun than to be got by Ahmed. And yet we've completely and totally changed our nation in response to terrorism we fundamentally altered the liberty of our nation in response to terrorism if you're someone who believes that the government is simply doing the best they can and that all of the stories that we're told about terrorists are hundred percent true and everything happened the way that we're told even if you believe it's a hundred they're hundred percent honest about it which i don't but even if you do that just means the terrorists have already won If you can commit actions that are less likely to successfully kill a citizen of of another nation than them dying from their own vomit in their own bed or suffocating themselves on a pillow or being shot by one of their own officers that are pledged to protect and observe and uphold and defend them, and you can get them to fundamentally alter who and what they are, you know, the government lies to you when they say they hate us for our freedom. But if they hate us for our freedom and we've given up this much of it, for something so truly insignificant in the grand scheme of things, then I guess they've accomplished what they've set out to do. And we have no one but to blame but ourselves. It's time to take some liberty back, folks. That's what we're all about here. That's why we talk about doing it in your own individual lives. Because the people of this country have collectively have their head up their ass, and we have to wake them up one at a time, and we're a long way from a critical mass. A critical mass is a point at which an idea becomes so powerful that it develops its own momentum moving forward and becomes unstoppable. The critical mass necessary to move this nation and shift this nation in, when the government wants to get something done is generally 51%. But when an idea is actually viral and organic, it's more like 10 It's more like 10%. When 10% of society really starts to begin to believe something and know that it's true and fundamentally act on it, it rapidly becomes 15, 20, 25, and at that point it has momentum and it just rolls. And I know you'd like to believe that at least 1 in 10 people out there get this, but right now they don't. You might think they do because you might live in an area where people fundamentally do get this, but your largest population centers are giant cities where these people have no clue. They believe everything that the TV tells them, and we're a long way from critical mass. So right now, it's fine to fight these things politically where and when we can, but the main place to build that fundamental liberty is in your own individual life, because you're going to need to be an example for others in what's coming. Let's take another one. Well, this next one's kind of a lifestyle design question. You know, How do you design your lifestyle for optimum independence, freedom, and liberty, which is what I'm talking about. And I can only do so much on these questions because this, this is personal. When I say develop your personal liberty, you have to look into your personal dreams and desires and goals, and you have to develop that based on you know that internal direction. But there's a logistical question here that I can try to at least guide people with, and I think this will be good for everyone here and not too personalized for the show. So here we go. And again, on some of this, you have to decide for yourself what you really want. Uh, Jack, what is more, and I want you to listen to the format of this question, like he gets the whole question out and then gives me details, and this is how you, you, you're more likely to get through my screening and get on the show, what is more important in terms of personal liberty and self-sufficiency, a bought and paid for piece of land, wherever we choose uh, or can afford, or to continue our education and work experience for rewarding and sustainable income that would lead to a piece of land? I'm 38, and I have a business degree. I've worked as a property manager, river guide, and in the service industry. My girlfriend is 29 and has been a river guide uh, for the past eight years. We're both swift water rescue team technicians as well as wilderness first responders. However, we both have been increasingly drawn to sustainable living, i.e. earthship-type homes, homesteading, and permaculture. And I've felt an increasing draw to take our lives in that direction. We have managed to save up a decent bit of money, Uh, to either buy some raw land and build a homestead or use it to further educate and make ourselves marketable for permaculture, homesteading-type career and or lifestyle. Currently, we are traveling around the northwest and southwest U.S. in a custom homemade travel trailer with three dogs. We use solar uh, for the electrical, a wood stove for heat, and a water catchment, which allows us to live anywhere. We're currently working seasonal jobs. Society doesn't make much sense to us, so we need to figure something else out that does. Any insight you have would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge. Wow, that's that's hard. That's hard to break down really. Um there's a lot going on there. So what you have done already is you've developed a way to live how you want to live with no real roots though. So this you can pick up and move uh strategy is quite interesting. But it also sounds like okay, we well, you have this this career that gives you this freedom, river guiding and and uh water rescue I think that's awesome. Uh, It may not be the most recession-proof type of a job, though. It's kind of dependent on the fact that somebody has money to go take a trip like this. But I think that you'll find that those businesses are more recession-proof than a lot of people think. The key is choosing an area that is going to be optimized for that skill set. I'm talking about kind of keeping the day job, so to speak, here at first. So in other words, there's places that are marginal for this type of thing, that they do, you do okay, but that's why you move, so that you can like go somewhere where you do better. And if you throw roots down in one of those places and the economy takes a spin, then maybe you've got a problem. So that's something to think about. If you kind of take the approach of, I'm going to set my home set up here, I'm going to start doing all my permaculture and learning, and at and, and then what I'm going to do from there is I'm going to kind of, do my day job as I build this second career, which I think might be the optimum way to do this. You have a steady income, and you have something you probably love doing. If I, I don't hear anything in here that tells me you hate it. You just are more and more attracted to this other way of living. As far as investing in your education, I think if you do a PDC, which you can do for somewhere between 800 bucks, and 1500 bucks, um, then I don't know how much more education you really need other than you might consider spending the money and the time commitment to go to australia and do an internship or do one of the internships here in the states but i don't know that you really need to do that i think that you learn permaculture best by doing it i think the biggest opportunities in permaculture are regional and largely untapped and what i mean is that the, the best knowledge we have in permaculture comes out of australia with very different climates than we have and we have this this like belief that people have that they're special that everything's different where I live and it's not but that that belief isn't of itself an opportunity and there is work to be done and I think that anybody who picks an area and says like I'm going to do southeastern United States like I'm going to focus on these four states and I'm going to develop guilds and species relationships and, and designs and all that work for large and small properties here and really markets that has a recipe for success. Falk, Ben Falk's done that quite a bit in the Northeast now. If you live in Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine, upstate New York, into Pennsylvania, that whole, let's say, PA, New Jersey, and into New England area, it is hard to beat the information that Ben has. And it makes him successful. Successful enough that he has to turn down work. So that is directly related, I believe, not just to Ben being good at what he does and decent at his marketing. Because I'd say he's only decent at his marketing. He's not great at it. But it's very attributable to his results. So I'm coming back to the property here if you can't see it coming, right? So to get those results, he had to go put that piece of property in. He had to have other income streams for himself while that property was being developed. And when he went to Chelsea Green and said, I want to publish a book he could go, and this is what will be inside of it. And they were like, okay, we'll do that, no problem. Because the results speak for themselves. So that kind of leads me toward this. If you can find the right place to develop a piece of land, that I think over three to four years of developing that piece of land, you'll learn more about your own biome, your own region, and permaculture than you ever will from books and classes. And take, take classes and read books, all that you can, but focus more on what you can do. I'd rather see if you had a lot of, you know, a, a sizable chunk of change. Let's say you had 50 grand to put into your education. I'd rather see 30 of it go into materials to develop a property. I, I really would. And 20 of it to go into a property itself. And you don't have to have a big property. I, I think that there's a belief that to like, to really do this. You know, I need 100 acres or something. You don't. I mean, don't get me wrong. The thought of developing a hundred acre property, like, freaking gives me goosebumps. Like, man, that's, that's awesome. And the thought of developing a thousand acres is like, gah. And I know what can be done with it. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to realize what can be done with three or two or one. Um, a one acre property can be amazing if it's right, if it's got the right kind of, Lay of the land and the soil and everything else can be blow you away, amazing. I mean, you put a tenth acre pond in there, and some swales, and you know, you got you, got, you know a tenth acre pond holds a lot more water than you think, and you push your roof run off into that pond. You put that pond in a position where you can use gravity with it to do some of your irrigation. You put a uh, uh t- style system around the outskirts of it and, and shelter the property and create microclimates. And I mean, you can blow up an acre into something that people look at. And when they walk through it, it feels like five. Like, they can't believe how big it feels because it's all in these different kind of compartments and beauty and passion but find if you're going to do an acre and you really want to blow it up and be impressive with it then you need a really optimum piece of property and that might mean you got to buy two or three acres to get that one acre piece that you can really optimize without worrying about a neighbor or what somebody else wants or something like that um, or just to be able to get like a good layout of an acre you know if you have a long if it, you have an acre but it's a long narrow strip it's a lot more difficult to work with than a square or a reasonable rectangle so i i think that really in the heart of your question is you know does it make more sense to spend the money on the education or the land my instinct is the land and here's why let's say you let's say you go this route and you end up realizing like I love this permaculture and the sustainable lifestyle thing, but what I really am learning and coming to understand is this is something I really want to do more for myself. And I, it's not really the business opportunity I thought it was for me. And I don't really want this as a business. If you have the land, you still have the asset. If you just have the education without the land, you don't really have the asset. You have the skill set and the knowledge, but if you don't want it, if you don't decide, it's not really what you want to market anymore. And I think a lot of people get the knowledge and they're just not effective at marketing themselves. And a lot of times it's because they haven't done anything. And I don't mean they haven't done anything like they don't know what to do. They haven't gone somewhere and done it on somebody else's They don't have a showcase. They can't turn to somebody and when somebody says, well, what does it look like? And they go like this. That's powerful. And it's a case for a smaller piece of land. It's a case for that half acre to one acre piece of land. Even if you have 10. Like if you can get a really good deal on 10 acres, great, buy it. God knows it's an asset. But then maybe you go in and you just permaculture up like a half to an acre where you can just intensively do it, accelerate the process a lot faster. So that showcases there in two to three years. Maybe not full-on developed, but people can look at it and go, wow. I mean, I think that's the strongest thing that a permaculturist has in his bag to, to win over people. When somebody says, well, why should I use you? Because I could do this for you. And that goes back to the land, and I think the land is an asset no matter what you decide to do. So I think it's safer. But would I tell you you're crazy if you said, you know what, we're just going to invest all our money in our education? We're going to go woof. We're going to go intern. We're going to go take a permaculture design course with Lawton in Australia or whatever you're going to do, and we're going to live in our little travel trailer. We're going to go here and there and everywhere, and you know, and, and learn about all the different ecosystems throughout the country, and Maybe, you know, there's another angle, right? If you have this skill set and you can learn as you go and you can plan a trip over two years that maybe circumnavigates the United States and you, you can put together a book or a course, then you have something pretty marketable as well, you know, that really takes in. This is what you do in the Northwest. This is what you do in, you know, the Northern West, right? So more of the Idaho, Montana Area going to be very different than the Seattle, Oregon, you know, Washington, Seattle, you know, Portland area. The, the south, but Southwest California is very different than Southwest Arizona. It's very different from what I really they call us the Southwest. But I look at you know this part of Texas being kind of South Central, and then the, you get into Louisiana, you're moving into Southeast and Midwest and, and 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 true Southeast like Florida. All these climates are different. So you could if you planned it with your skill set, get a very good education, augmented with formal education, just traveling the nation, and you might decide where you really want to settle and buy that land from that. I would just say this. If you buy land, be smart about it by buy right. If you don't buy land now, keep saving for it. Even if you invest in yourself and do this kind of secondary ideal that I've just given you, keep this land fund going. Sooner or later, you're going to want it. And with your you have a unique opportunity too. You could easily have something like, you know, up in the north and down in the south and snowbird it. And both of those could be very self-sustaining permaculture-esque properties. And you move back and forth north to south like the birds. That's a, that's another opportunity you have. It will spread out your resources, you'll move slower, but you're going to be less intensive in design anyway because you're not going to be there, let's say, six months out of the year in each place. But it will give you redundancy uh, if there's ever any kind of a real problem. So, I mean, you got to make the final decision. My gut is the land, but it may not be the case for you. Let's take another one. Moving to a totally different question. This one actually came in as a blog comment, but I think it's a, it's a good follow-up to last week. Uh, Hi Jack, got a question about spoiled biltong. A few weeks ago, I made a batch of biltong based on your videos. Turned out great. However, not considering the best way, not considering the best way to store it might be different. I did what I do with the store-bought jerky. I put it in a plastic bag with a couple of O2 absorbers and kept it in a cabinet. Within a week, the whole batch was moldy. Deleted expurplative. I did a quick search at a time of the best ways to store biltong and came up with this. And there's a uh, a post that says, how long does Biltong last? And uh, reading the rest of um, his email before I get into that, from your podcast, sounds like there shouldn't be a problem storing any thoughts. By the way, not sure if it matters. The O2 absorbers came used out of cans of freeze-dried fruit food. That probably doesn't matter. Anyway, the link is from a company that sells commercially produced Biltong, so I don't really care what they have to say. Let me tell you what's probably going on here. You should not be storing this thing in a low O2 environment. Um, If you've made your biltong, likely you haven't fully dried it out. You've left it a little bit moist. Moist things should not be stored in low oxygen environments. Let me say it again. Moist things should not be stored in oxygen-deprived environments. It creates a situation where anaerobic uh, bacterium uh, and other things could start to grow. And the biggest problem you have is that you stored it with O2 absorbers and you shouldn't do it. Um, I store Biltong basically in a jar with nothing. With nothing. Just a, a jar. Um, and it will stop it from drying out and you won't be in a low O2 situation and you won't have much of a problem. It'll dry a little bit more over time. You could store Biltong if you don't care that it's going to dry out a lot on you. You could store it in open jars. You could store it in a paper bag. You could store it anywhere you want to as long as you don't put it into that depleted environment. Now, if you were to put it into a vacuum environment, like vacuum seal it, or put it into a a dry vacuum jar, that might work better. See, when you you go into this O2 absorber thing, you haven't removed the air. You've removed the oxygen. Well, you still have 78% nitrogen in there and a little bit of CO2 and some other things. So with an O2 where all you've done is pull the, pull the O2 out. So I've never tried vac sealing um, built-on, but I think it would work. I just don't see the point. Um, honestly, you know, throw it in some Tupperware or throw it in a, a, a jar and don't even worry about sealing it super tight. It'll be fine. Um, and again, I would be interested to how cured your Biltong was when you stored it. If, like a lot of people, you like it kind of in that really still kind of flexible, moist state, yeah, if you put that into a situation like you're describing when it's wet, it's going to mold on you. It just absolutely is going to mold on you. If you want to store it like that, at that state, my my advice would be to go with maybe a, uh, a vacuum-sealed packaging and uh, store it. In a, you could freeze it if you want to. Um, it's not really designed to be that, and I'm not saying you did, but to be that level of not cured. It's not really designed to last. If you, The longer you want it to last, the drier you want to let it become. Anyway, let's go on to another one. This comes from Jason. Jason sends me this article. It says, uh, article for Jack, TSA agent bled out for 33 minutes. This is, of course, the shooting out in California. Let me read the article and then give you some thoughts on why the advice I've tried to give people is is really important that we, we take it to heart and, and, and at least consider it if we ever end up in one of these situations. Los Angeles, Associated Press, an airport security officer lay helplessly bleeding after a gunman opened fire at Los Angeles International Airport as paramedics waited 150 yards away because police had not declared the terminal safe to enter, according to two law enforcement officials. It would be 33 minutes before Transportation Security Administration Officer Geraldo Hernandez, who was about 20 feet from an exit, would be wheeled out by police to an ambulance, said the officials, who were briefed on the investigation and spoke on condition of anonymity because the probe was still going into the November 1 shooting. For all but five of those minutes, there was no threat from a suspected gunman. He had been shot and was in custody, they said. While it's not known when Hernandez died, or if immediate medical attention could have saved his life. Officials are examining what conversations took place between police and fire commanders to determine when it was safe enough to enter and whether paramedics could have gone into the terminal earlier, one of the officials said. Let's let the rest of the article speak for itself. If you want to read it, that's fine. But let me, let, let, let's just, let let's answer the question that government is now trying to figure out. Was it, it, Could paramedics have gone into the terminal earlier? We're trying to figure out if they could have. Yes, you dumbass! Of course they could have! The guy that did it was shot and handcuffed and in custody. Alright? So you know you could have. So you don't need a freaking investigation to determine whether you could have or not. Maybe you need an investigation to determine why you didn't, or was proper procedure followed, and was it maybe that we delayed because we weren't sure if there was another threat, and what have you. But the reality is... You got a guy laying on the ground bleeding and dying, and the guy that pulled the triggers in custody, you get in there and help. The the people that do these jobs are willing to risk. They're willing to risk if they're allowed to risk. But they follow commands. Bigger message this is why the concept, the bullshit concept of shelter in place is very, very bad advice in all of these situations. Especially when somebody's been hurt. Or if the threat's still ongoing. You guys need to have in your mind, if something goes wrong, long before lockdown occurs, get out! Get out! Get out! Get out! Get Get the hell out! Right? You can explain why you did what they told you not to do much easier if you're alive than if you're shot in the ass or dead. Alright? Get out! Get out! Get out! If somebody comes into a building and starts shooting, If you're armed and you see an opportunity, you may want to move, take cover, and return fire as a good citizen. Otherwise, get out. Get out. That's the number one way people survive these things is getting the hell out. And most of these people that do these shootings, if everybody got out, would end up on their own really, really fast. And then they're easy to kill. They're hard to kill when there's all kinds of friendlies in the way that might get hurt. That's their leverage tool, their principle. And Let's be honest, okay? If somebody comes into a situation like this and starts shooting, they're either pissed off at a person or group of persons, and they're going there to kill them, or they're pissed off at everybody, and they're going to go kill as many people as they want to. This means you're probably likely to survive getting the hell out of the way if you're not one of those people. And if, you're, if the guy's going to kill everybody you're probably more likely to survive running away than hiding under a desk. Get out, get out, get out. Is there ever a time for sheltering in place? Yeah. Yeah. Let's say that nobody around you hurt. Let's say you have a very secure location and you can you can barricade it and you know that if you do that, anything less than explosives, man, that guy ain't getting in here. Yeah, wait it out. I, I get it. I understand. But if that location has something like a frickin' window that leads to the outside world, lock it up and get the hell out. Get out! Run. Not in a straight line. Run and get cover. Understand that there's a concealment and cover. These are things we should be teaching people. Right? When this type of thing happens, this is how you respond. And in some situations, the response is immediately attack the attacker. Immediately attack the attacker. There's very few people that aren't going to be taken out if if, if four people bum-rush the guy and just start pounding his ass. Could you get shot that way? Yeah. Do you want to take that risk? I don't know. In some situations, it will make sense. In some situations, it won't make any sense. It won't make any sense at all. Sometimes hiding is the right answer. But you determine that. Don't let somebody that doesn't have the knowledge you do determine what makes you in safe and what makes you endangered. Now, here's the case for immediate response. The problem is that once lockdown orders have been given, and there's a reasonable expectation by responders that people in a building would know this. If you're up and moving and running around, you may be perceived as a threat. And if you get to that stage, then you very well may be stuck locked down. And if you're going to do something like go out a window, you probably need to signal it in some way that people are coming out so that responders know not to shoot you. Because it would suck to decide, i got to get out of here. And then, you know, it turns out that you are more likely to be shot by a police officer than blown up by a terrorist. Okay? So, that again begats the concept of immediate response. Get out. Immediately. Now, I have to say, I can't second-guess what anybody did with this guy laying there bleeding to death. But if I had any belief that the guy that was shot, the guy that did the shooting was down, and if you were there where this guy was shot, it's probably kind of evident that they took him out. Like, you probably know they took him out. And they said, we're on lockdown. I'd be going friendlies, friendlies, and I'd be dragging the guy, the 150 freaking yards. But that's me. People have to make their own decisions. I can't second guess anybody on that. But I'll tell you this, the bigger lesson here isn't about mass shootings. It's about when you think help is coming, a lot of times it's not. Or by the time it gets there, it's too late. We need to have individual plans of action and an individual survival instinct. And then we have to also take this with a grain of salt. It's possible he didn't bleed out for 30 minutes. It's possible he was shot and he was dead. We don't know that. we don't know that. Um, there are certain gunshot wounds that when they occur, it does it wouldn't it wouldn't matter if you were laying on a gurney in a hospital with a team of doctors ready to go and you were shot once or multiple times in certain ways with certain weapons. And then like it was like a scientific control, like bang, bang, bang. And then they said, go ahead, Doc, save him, that they wouldn't be able to save you. So we don't know that. We don't know whether or not this guy was even savable. But we do know that they could have went in before they did. We know that he did not have to lay there that long. There's There's no investigation necessary to make that determination. And the whole shit about, well, you don't know if there's another shooter... I'm sorry, law enforcement officers and first responders, but that's your job to go into harm's way when you don't know. That's your job to once you have a reasonable, like, okay, we know this guy's, this guy's down, shoot her down, tag team in, go now, look for, get them out. Apparently, that's not the way they do things in California. Apparently, that's not the way they do things in a lot of places. So please be prepared to take care of yourself. You may very well have to at some point. Before I finish that, since we talk about terrorism today, how many people on 9-11 are dead because they obeyed an order to go back into the building that everything was okay and it was safe to return to their offices? And how many people are alive because they said bullshit and got out? Just please, if you're ever in one of these situations, and it will probably not be just like another situation. All of them are unique. Please think for yourself. And keep your head about you and your wits about you, but trust your instincts. Your survival instincts are real, and they're what's kept us along alive for so long on this planet. Time for another Jack's Right um, thing. I've been saying for, oh, ever, as long as I've been on the air, uh, that our economy's in real trouble, and we're in for a major shift, and that one of the reasons would be um, that we would not be able to pay pensions, both at the government and in the private sector, uh more the government than the private sector but uh, th- there would be this place where it would really overlap uh cities and counties would be one thing but unions would be another that in the in the private sector most of the pensions today are more along the lines of 401k's and those are individually held and you know the company has a limited say so and you know they they have their own problems and the government certainly wants them but in the world of the union worker, things are not quite the same way. They're almost like a quasi government. Um, with pensions where the, the, the employer is ended up having to put money aside for the employee and pay them, you know, in many cases for the rest of their lives for not working. Um, and that there's a lot of shenanigans in both the government sector and this union sector and that, One of the things that would happen is, in spite of protesting and arguing and gnashing of teeth, that pensions would necessitatively be cut. Not necessarily eliminated, but cut. And and not a little hair trimming, not like a 1-2% deal. Like, that would be some, you'd see some cities and stuff do that and, and claim that they could balance the books next year or whatever. But sooner or later, there'd be big, major reckoning here. And it would start in one of these sectors, and it would start trickling down. And it would have a massive impact on the economy because as we move into this basketball of baby boomer retirement, one of the largest segments of our population is becoming the newly retired. The 60 to 80-year-old is like becoming one of the largest segments of the population and one of what is considered to be one of the more financially stable. Generally, they've been in their home a long time, so it's either paid for or their house payment is comparatively low. If you've been in a house 20 years... You you know even with the real estate problems we had in the 2000 you know ten decade, um, your house payment's probably relatively low. If you've been in for 25 years or 30, even if you've refinanced and still have a mortgage, um, you're probably looking at a very very low house payment. So their their expenses are comparatively low. Their children are gone. Hopefully they're not you know supporting them too much. Most of the baby boomers, their kids are not. The, the, you know, the latest generation, the, the Gen Xer who's relatively stable. Um, the Gen Xer in his forties right now is relatively stable. Um, so they don't have a huge burden with their kids. And, uh, they have these, you know, social securities and pensions and things like that. And we bank on those people to spend lots of freaking money. And they do. They spend a lot of money. Um, because they don't have anything to do anymore. They're either not working at all or doing some little part-time hobby thing, they travel a lot, and they have disposable income, largely because of these pensions. And so I'm painting a picture here for you before I tell you what's happening so you can understand how it does affect you. If those people end up going from relatively financially stable and relatively significant spenders in an economy to people that even can get by but they curtail their spending significantly... um. That spells trouble for the totality of the economy. So you have that frame of reference now. Let's go into this article. CNN Money. <laughs> retired union workers facing unprecedented pension cuts. Who could have ever seen this coming? I just don't know. Hundreds of thousands of retired Hundreds of thousands, get that, of retired union workers are facing pension cuts that could slash their monthly payments in half or even more. The proposed cuts are part of a desperate effort to head off insolvency at multi-employer pension plans. Pensions that typically provide benefits for workers at several companies. It's an unconventional move. Pension law has long maintained that cutting benefits of those already retired is off limits. Current law allows troubled multi-employer plans to reduce the benefits that employees earn going forward, cut early retirement and disability benefits, and hike employer contributions instead. But things have gotten so dire that a coalition of employers and labor unions is asking Congress to change the law. Multi-employer pension plans cover more than 10 million workers and retirees in the trucking, construction, retail, mining, manufacturing, and other industries. Historically, the plans were considered more secure since multiple employers pay into the plans instead of relying on the fortunes of just one company. But in the past decade, many plans have struggled with supporting an aging workforce. Large employers have been pulling out of plans. In addition, many are still dealing with significant losses incurred during during the recession. The proposal would allow cuts in those plans that are closest to insolvency, according to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which ensures pension plans up to 10% of the roughly 1,500 multi-employer plans will run out of money in coming decades. If cuts are allowed, retired truck driver Glenn Nicodemus, 63, could see his monthly benefits fall around from $3,300 a month to as little as $1,180 a month. He retired in March after nearly 40 years on the road, and his only other source of income is the $1,700 a month in Social Security benefits. Let's let's pause there for a second and let's do the math of what that means. So his current income, $3,300. Right? Plus $1,700 equals $5,000. Folks, to do the math, that's easy. Five times 12 is $60,000 a year. Is this man's income for not working? Um, and he's banked on that to be his income for the rest of his life. $60,000 a year. Now, is $60,000 a year a big time salary anymore? No, but it's better than a lot of Americans. There's a lot of Americans busting their tail. They can't see sixty thousand a year in their future now I'm not saying whether this man's entitled to this or not okay I'm saying that right now the numbers don't work the money's not there so what he's looking at is going to an income um, from a sixty thousand dollar a year income see eleven $1, eighty plus seventeen hundred twenty eight eighty times twelve. Thirty-four, five, almost, almost, not just, I mean, his his pension may be cut by more than half here, but his income is almost being cut in half. I want you to just stop and think for a second. How would it affect you if your income was cut in half right now? And some of you are going, I wouldn't be happy about it, but you know what? I'd be fine. Those are probably those of you who have been listening to this show for five years and building your lifestyle around the potential of that occurring. How many of these people in their 60s, this guy's 63, do you think are doing that? Now, let's, let's examine something. Can this guy exist on $34,000 a year? Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of people do it. Will he be the spender he was at $60,000 a year? Only a retard would say anything other than no. Of course not. Right? Um, so what does that mean? That means that there's probably lots of Nicodemuses out there that might go through this. Like, I don't know, over time, 10 million of them. And when they curtail that spending that the entire economy has been banking on, what is the trickle-down effect of that? Let me uh, let me read a little more of the article before I finish up on it. Quote, I could probably get a job driving again, but I really don't want to, end quote, he said. Quote, these are the years I was looking forward to being together with my family, enjoying what time I do have left. It takes a lot of that away, end quote. Nicodemus receives his checks from one of the country's largest multi-employer plans, the Central State Southeast and Southwest Area Pension Fund, which is also one of the most troubled. The fund is projected to become insolvent in the next 10 to 15 years if cuts, are, if cuts are allowed. The fund's more than 200,000 retirees could see their checks slashed by as much as 60%. I Quote, without timely intervention, workers in the most deeply troubled plants are at risk of seeing the benefits they have earned drastically reduced. End quote. Thomas Nehan, executive director of the Central State Pension Fund, said in a recent Congress subcommittee hearing. So you read you read the rest of the article if you want to. But basically, the people that run the pension fund, that have managed it into an insolvent status, now want the government to fix it. We've got to bail these guys out, man. This guy drove a truck for 40 years. He's entitled to this. The money's not there. And the money was never going to be there. And everybody with a brain said, the money is not going to be there. There will be no money. This will go Bankrupt. And the union said, no, that's just lying to you. We are entitled to this primo benefit plan. Now, what if, what if Nicodemus had planned on a retirement pension of about $1,200 a month from his pension plan, which seems to be reasonably doable? Then he might be in a position where he had lived and managed his finances differently. And he would have done a couple different things. One, built a lifestyle he could live on at his current income level. Two, saved more of his own money so that he could have a greater income in his retirement. Three, worked longer before retiring, if he thought that was necessary for himself. Four, a combination of the three. But those were all decisions that he would have been forced to make if he hadn't been lied to about the income that he was expecting to get and believed in it with faith. See, this is like a religion. This belief that these pension funds will always be there is like a religion. And the reason I say it's like a religion is because it's based on faith, not fact. People don't believe in their religions because of facts. They believe because of faith. And I know somebody's going to get upset about that, but it's true. People that believe in you know, the prophet Muhammad being sent by God don't believe that because... God sent an angel to them personally to say, yeah, it's true, and they saw it happen, right? Or they were taken back in time to see it. People that believe that Jesus rose from the dead don't believe it because Jesus walked in their house and said, here I am. They believe it because of faith. I'm not judging that faith. I'm just saying that's why people believe religions. And you can say it of the Buddhist faith, the Hindu faith, shamanism, paganism. It doesn't matter. People believe because of faith. And that makes sense in religion. It doesn't make sense with money. We don't believe that money will be somewhere if math says it will not be there. And the math has said for a long time, this, I'm not Nostradamus, guys. You know, my, my late friend Ron Hood used to call me spirco all the time. This isn't, this isn't soothsaying, this isn't fortune telling, this isn't something I get a bunch of credit for. I'm not going to, you know, sit around like Gerald Salente going, see, I told you. I'm not, no. No, because anybody that can do math can figure this out. Now, the only thing that's keeping that $1,700 a month check from Social Security from bouncing is the government's ability to print money at will. It's in the same boat. All of these pension plans are in the same boat, and here's the bigger problem that, again, no one's talking about. As people hit these retirement ages, more and more we're moving into the place where the guy's not just banking on the four or the uh, the pension plan and Social Security. More and more we're moving into a point now where seniors that are retiring have plant, okay? They have plant, and they do have four hundred and one ks and IRAs, and they're holding. Lots and lots of stock, mostly in the form of mutual funds. And some of these people planned on like not dipping into that money for another 15 to 20 years. What they were basically thinking is, okay, look, I got this $60,000 a year salary. Okay? So if I wait until I'm like 70 to dip into, or 75 to dip into this 401k IRA thing, Right? And I leave it in stocks because that's worked out pretty well. Even with the recessions, it's worked out because they're tricked because they were continually buying during the recession and they didn't see their realized losses for what they were because they were contributing while the market was returning. So they think they did okay, even though the loss was real. They never really understood it because it just came out and they didn't think about it. All right? So now that person has been thinking, oh, it's 75. I'll still have a $60,000 income, but things will be more expensive then. I'll start dipping into that 401k then, and I'll give myself a $20,000 a year raise when I'm 70 or 75. And then I can, you know, I can do that until I'm 95, and I figure I'll probably be dead by then. So there's people that have had that conversation with their financial advisor. Well, there's a couple things that are going to happen if this continues. One... People without these pensions that have made that plan, that have put more money in there, are going to start selling the funds to turn it into cash so that they can have the income. That's going to create an exodus of the stock market. And it's going to get bigger and bigger as more and more people retire. And this type of thing, where a pension gets cut, only accelerates it. Let's say if Nicodemus wasn't the sob story that AP wanted to do a piece on. Let's say that Nicodemus was that guy. Let's say that Nicodemus... Right, was like this truck driver dude and he heard about this IRA thing a long time ago and said, that sounds like a good idea. Or he worked for a company that even though they had a pension, they had a 401 and whatever it was, he was bankrolling that. Right, He was bankrolling it. And he had this plan. Hey, 60 grand a year, we have paid off the house, we can travel around and see the kids, I can spend time with my family like I've always wanted to, I'm off the road, I got a $60,000 a year income, that's fine, I don't need this 401k money, I'm going to leave it there. Now, he gets a cut, for about $26,000 a year. If he has this bankrolled IRA, he's going to call up his financial advisor and say, Hey, Tom, I got this problem. They're cutting my pension. And my lifestyle's being devalued by twenty six grand a year. I was wondering, since I got like $2.5 million, and a lot of these guys, even truck drivers, do. Especially in the next 5 to 10 years. There's a much higher prevalence of... Of these private accounts in the hands of the guy that's 40 to 55 right now, than there is in the guy that's 55 to 70 right now. Okay, that bubble, that that new investment scheme came on hard in the 80s. There's a lot of guys coming into this, 20, 30 years of saving into that in their pocket. Some of these guys are multimillionaires in those accounts, and you think, well, that's great. I don't have to worry about him. Okay. Watch what happens. So Tom goes, gee, uh, I think you should stay in. He goes, bullshit, Tom. I saved this money for this time and place. And, to, and Tom goes, well, we'll just sell X percent of Y, Z, and X, and then uh, that'll take you a check for the amount of month that you need. That'll be sent out to you every month. And, and Nicodemus would say, do that. Okay, now what happens when a million Nicodemuses are liquidating stock for cash? Monthly, okay. Now let's make it worse. Nicodemus starts doing this, and after about a year or two, he starts to see his value and his his money go down. And he calls Tom, and Tom says, "Well, you're taking money out." He goes, "No, no, no. I've done the math, and I figured this out. It's not just the value going out that I'm taking out. There's more going down." He says, "Well, the market's been in a little bit of a decline." And Nicodemus says, "Really?" You know what I think it's time to do? I think it's time to go much safer with these investments. And then Nicodemus liquidates most of his stocks and goes into bonds and cash equivalents and things like that that are far more stable it's because he's done the math and he now wants to give himself a raise and he's figured out how long he can live to 95 or 100 years of age and take that money out and and not worry about the cut in the pension. Now, a couple million Nicodemuses are doing that. Do you understand what that does to a stock market balance? Do you understand that a different version of that is what created the collapse in 08? The one I told you was coming before it happened? When people freaked and started selling, the only thing the mutual fund manager can do is execute a trade at market for the securities in the fund to get the cash to pay out the holder of the account who says, I want cash. Doesn't matter if that person's taking out of the 401k or not. It could be because they want the money sent to them. It could be because they say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable anymore, let's go into Swiss bonds, and they want to buy a Swiss bond fund, and they say sell 1,000 shares of XYZ mutual fund, and buy however many shares of Swiss bond fund A. Well that fund manager gets the order, it's all electronic, but really what's happening is the fund manager gets the order, executes the trade, he has to, he can't say no, at least not yet. Capital controls, folks, remember, right? That's how these things get implemented. Well, we, if we let this happen, the whole world will fall apart. Destroy the free market to save it, right? Okay, <laughs> but initially, that's what happens. When Nicodemus says, get my money out of this, put it into U.S. government bonds, because he thinks that's a good thing, Swiss bonds, a money market account, a uh, cash equivalent fund, and this other thing over here that I think is safe, all those mutual funds get dumped. All that stock gets sold. Nicodemus doing it with a couple million dollars, no impact. It's it's a mouse fart vapor in a world of elephant farts. It doesn't matter. But when it's a couple hundred thousand or a couple million doing it in a given year, it has a marked effect on the market. Once the market begins to have that effect, it causes other investors to get squeamish, who then take the similar steps, either going into hedge funds, right. Or buying shorts as insurance against their own losses, right? And money has to come from somewhere. Or in liquidation and transfer to more stable assets. This is your financial future. I'm not spirito Domus. I understand mathematics and economics. And there are millions of people. Let me give you the number again, just in this one class of people. I think it's I want to make sure I find it real quick. I think it's 10 million people they said are in these types of pensions. Yeah, multi-employer, I'm reading right from the article. Multi-employer pension plans cover more than 10 million workers and retirees in the trucking, construction, retail, mining, manufacturing and other industries. 10 million people are in this type of account that they're going they're going to do this. They're going to make this law change. And what's the, there's two things you can do. There's actually there's three potential things you can do here one you can do nothing you can say you know what they made the promise they're going to pay out until they can't pay out anymore and in 10 to 15 years all of these people get nothing the plans become completely insolvent and go bankrupt and fold that's one option and it is an option and you know if you got in early you make out and if you got in late you don't that's a ponzi scheme very definition of one that's how it works so the hell with the people coming down the pike And that will accelerate the crash because people will say, I don't want my money going in there if I'm never going to see it back. Social security. All right. (laughs) That's that's where people are starting to feel about social security too. The younger generation is is going to lengths including not working because they don't want to see their money go there because they know they're never getting it back. Here is a much more accelerated problem. That's one option. Option two, you cut benefits and you prolong the program to where it becomes reasonably sustainable over a few decades. And everybody gets that income cut, and all those things I said would happen are an offshoot of it. The third option is the government steps in and says, here's a check for $100 million or whatever they need, a $1 billion, $500 million, whatever it is. Just says, here, we're going to bail you out. And you know what? They do that for this one fund, this one pension plan, and then plans with more than 10 million workers and retirees in the trucking, construction, retail, mining, manufacturing and other industries all get in line and say, we'd like some too, please. And how long can we do that for? And we have people in our liberal Congress and our liberal Senate going, we have to take care of these people, it's the right thing to do. Well, many times, folks, the right thing to do is not immediately obvious. And frankly, what they're asking to be done is to give drugs to an addict. I know the workers get hurt. I don't like it. But the people managing the store are the ones that did this. They're the ones that agreed to this. They're the ones that put the money away. They're the ones that lost the money. And the people that that worked for these companies assumed part of the risk along the way. When you take a job, you're not guaranteed you'll have that job tomorrow. And not always because you could be fired. You're assuming the risk. The company you've chosen to work for and base your life on could go out of business. You're assuming the risk when you bank on a pension that the pension will be there in totality or partially. You're assuming the risk. So these workers, whether it feels good or not, are risk sharers with the companies that they've partnered with and with the pension funds they've negotiated these agreements with. So what happens if Uncle Sam robs the taxpayer and bails out these pension funds? Well, that just ups our national debt. It creates further movement toward insolvency of our own Social Security program and our own Medicaid-Medicare program. And it robs from tomorrow's generation to pay for the last generation who didn't manage their finances properly. and puts them at greater risk. The truth is, for all this crap about terrorism... The greatest threat to the security of the nation right now is our national debt, our unfettered spending, and our increasing appetite for more debt. The finance and the economy of this nation is our biggest threat, and no one gives a shit. And that's the truth. But these realities are coming. There's no way around them. And this is just another, I mean, for those of you that think it's not going to happen, this is just another proof point. This is another example, not of me being right, really, of the system unwinding the way that you can see that it's unwinding. How many of these can can you bail out? I mean, you see, the first reaction is to run to the government and say, fix it. When, I'm telling you, I know you feel bad for people like Mr. Nicodemus. And that's why they've picked him to to, to showcase. Because they, they, they didn't want somebody with the 401k that they could fall back on. They wanted the old man that drove a truck for 40 years, who's finally living the good years, who's going to have it ripped out from underneath them to talk about it. But here's the reality. You start a process of bailing these things out, and for every Nicodemus you save, you'll create 100 If you let these things fall completely on their ass, and they don't cut the benefits, for every Nicodemus you save, you'll create 100. If they cut the benefits, you'll create probably 10 to everyone. It's very painful. It's very wrong. But the wrong has already been done. There's no writing it now understand that, I mean, we can look at wrongs that we've done as a society for a long time, and some of them there's just no going there is no going back and fixing it. there's no going back and fixing what we did to Native Americans there's there is only the there's only tomorrow there's only the future. there's only honoring what we committed to eventually and continuing to honor that. there's no fixing it. there's no fixing the fact that we participated in the the birth of this nation, participated in a slave trade, and took people from their, their, their lands on the other side of the world and brought them here as property of another man. There's no fixing it. There's no going back and making it right. Nothing will ever do that. There's only tomorrow. There's only looking to the past and going, this was really wrong, let's never do this again, and let's deal with it and move forward. Economically, that's where we're at. There's no fixing it. There's no political solution to the problem, and there's not even any more a free market solution to the problem without paying first, either way. What we need to do is look at this and go, you know, this whole thing of taking money for people against their will on their behalf and putting it away and promising it back to them later, that doesn't work. Let's never do that again. Let's never steal from one generation to fund another ever again, either in reverse or forward. Let's never do that again. Let's never base an economy on debt ever again. Let's not do this anymore. Well, it's going to suck. It's going to suck anyway. At least if this nation were to pull its head out of its ass and realize that, we could walk open-eyed into what's coming and deal with it. And deal with it. But instead, we're going to ignore it. We're going to stick our fingers in our ears. And we're going to go, la, 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 it's not true. La, 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 I don't believe it. La, 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 la. All the way until it smacks us in the face. And then your leaders are going to have the audacity to look you in the face and say there's no way we could have prevented this and there's no way we could have seen this coming this way. And if you believe them when they do, I don't know why you're listening to me. And if you're not preparing for it, I don't know why you're listening to me. And it's not all about saving silver and gold. It's it's about stabilizing your life and preparing to live on less than you have. If I cut your pay by 20%, and it would bankrupt you within a year, even within a year or two. You're living unsustainably, and that's probably being too kind to you to let you have it at 20%. You should build a lifestyle that's sustainable on 50% of your income, on 50% of your income today and on 50% of your planned income tomorrow. It is the only way to safeguard yourself. In our coming economy. And if nothing goes wrong, the only thing that'll happen is eventually you'll go, that jack guy was crazy. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. Look at all this money I have. That's the, that's the only bad. Wait a minute. That's not so bad. Right. That's the only downside to accepting this reality that you could one day wake up and realize, you know what? They fixed everything. Son of a gun. That Spiro guy was nuts. Look at all this money. Have all this money set aside. All these assets set aside, I I, 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 and I can live on like how would I make? And now I can do like whatever I want with this money. Don't bet on that happening. That's not what I'm promising you. I'm telling you that's that's the that's where I'm completely wrong. And they fix everything, and they make it all work, and they bail everybody out, and magical unicorns arrive and fart rainbows, and angels come out and grant wishes, and the the country returns. To the nostalgia of the America we never really were, except in the minds of people's nostalgia. And it becomes like the 1950 Eisenhower America with the new world of people not hating each other because of their race or religion or skin color. And everything's perfect world. That world. If that world happens, if I'm wrong. You'll be better off. If something in the middle between what I'm telling you when that happens, you'll be better off. And brother... What I'm telling you is going to happen, happens. You'll really be better off. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we Some we Someday we'll realize Our children just can't pay There's nobody up there